Hi, I'm Jake Cornell. I'm a comedian in New York City, and for the past 10 years, I've been living and breathing the restaurant industry. This is a show where I'll be talking to comedians, actors, bartenders, chefs, and restaurant owners about all things going out. We'll talk about restaurants, bars, staying in, drinking, not drinking, and whatever else we want. This is Going Out with Jake Cornell. Hello, it's Jake again. Today's episode is really fun. It's a little bit different than most of the episodes we've done so far because this week's guest, I actually met through doing the podcast. Like we meet on the episode. Um, Vine Pair connected us. Um, he is a writer and DJ. His DJ name is DJ Accident Report, and he's done writing for Vine Pair on like queer nightlife and the drag scene. And he's been in New York nightlife and New York queer li- nightlife for like his entire adult life and teenage life. Like longer than I could have even thought of, like before I even knew the name Metropolitan, he was like really immersed in the scene. And so this conversation was so fun for me because I got to learn so much and ask so many questions. Um, Yeah, it's a really great, really fun episode. And I think there's like a lot of, I think it's like an important one to listen to, honestly, if you care about queer nightlife, if you care about the New York drag scene, if you care about drag scenes in general, it's a really fun episode. I'm going to stop talking so you can listen to it. Please enjoy me going out with Eric Shorey. <laughs> yeah, we become a brunch podcast in, right. in the wake of Omicron. <laughs> so you are, I like you. Obviously, you just mentioned you haven't gone out in a while, but looking at like your writing and also being a DJ, like you are someone who's very heavily like. It seems like nightlife is the main focus of where your energy's going. Uh, funny, no. Uh, no? I have like a whole other. I'm I'm a full time psychotherapist. So, oh, <laughs> I like I supported myself throughout my training with nightlife, but uh, now that's not my main focus. No, that's so funny. I feel like I'm playing I a always... good trick on everyone. You are. You definitely are keeping up. You're definitely the the mirage is effective. Yeah, yeah. I'm really good at this. <laughs> but I also think that's a. I think what just happened is a little bit of a a peek into my own bias because I, I, I worked in like bars and restaurants for a decade and I was always coming up at it from the point of view of doing that to like doing that, doing that job to get out of, to be able to get into like a creative job and you were doing creative work to get into like a degree holding position. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's so, I just like, I always forget that people can do it in the reverse because I'm so, my brain is so ingrained in viewing it in the opposite totally, kind of totally. chain of events. Yeah. When you got into nightlife and stuff, did you know like psychotherapy is where you actually wanted to end up or was that like a longer process? No, no, not at all. Um, I went to grad school. I learned how to DJ in college. I went to grad school thinking I was going to be an academic. Um, didn't get into any PhD programs because academia is really insane and competitive and yeah, it's wild. yeah. So then I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do with myself. If I wasn't going to be an academic, I was still DJing. I was throwing parties. I was throwing art shows in basements and, you know, was this all in New York? Yeah. Uh, I went to, I learned how to DJ in Boston. Uh, I went to grad school at the new school so I, I, for a while, while I was in grad school with a bunch of my grad school, like colleagues, I ran, um, an art space called, uh, what was it called? Bushwick underground, underground Bushwick, um, Bushwick Morgan Ave underground. Sorry. Wow. That was like <laughs> 10 years ago. That's really weird to think about. Um, it was called Morgan Avenue underground. And we, um, we threw a monthly party with a theme that had art on all of the walls, that was related to the theme. And then we had performance artists come in. That's so fun. Like usually drag queens, but all kinds of performance artists. We had like a cult do like a weird spell at one of our shows. It was very strange. (laughs) So um, I was doing that. And then because I didn't get into any PhD programs, a professor of mine was like, you know, you were really good at psychoanalysis when you were writing about it. Have you ever considered becoming a psychotherapist? Um, So I tried it out for a few years. I loved it, but it's just, it's not, I mean, when you're training as a psychotherapist, you only make 
uh, at most $30 a session. And you you don't get yeah. a ton of patients at the at one time because they don't want to overwhelm you. So I had I had for a while a full-time job as an assistant editor at Random House. For a while, I was full-time freelance as a writer. For a while, I was, um, you know, I just was doing everything. And then eventually mm-hmm. I just got my psychoanalysis license and that's what I'm doing mostly now. And then uh, just picking up DJ gigs wherever I can. I mean, I was also working on a YouTube show with two of my closest drag queen buddies, sisters, girlies. Uh, and then mm-hmm. that supported me for a while. I mean, it's really all over the place of just trying to figure out how the fuck to live in an artistic career. Totally. It's such a piecemeal together sort of thing. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And I, I, I would have loved to have been able to do nightlife full time. And I would have loved if that was, um, financially possible, but I'm sure you're aware it isn't like the, the girls no. who are full time nightlife people work harder than anyone I've ever met sleep less than every anyone I've ever met. It's it's really yeah, it's, I, I don't know how anyone can do it, especially now in this economy. I mean the pandemic of course was um like the deciding moment of like, all right, you're not gonna be a full time nightlife person. It's not doable right now. Totally. Yeah. I mean it's it, for a period of time it just couldn't exist yeah. at all. Yeah. It's wild like yeah, I agree with you. I because I was in restaurants and bars for so long, the like nightlife party scene was like a real blind spot for me because I feel like it's really hard to do both when you're also trying to have like a career outside of it like you can't have all three right because it's like I can't go to the party that starts at 1am after a restaurant shift and then like there's no there's only so much energy before I would like die um because if I also have to do like shows or like whatever rehearsals during the day and so until this past this past year was when I started to like explore that scene a lot more when as I was like phasing out of restaurants and seeing the people who like produce nightlife events, produce these parties, the DJs who put them up and stuff, and then like how how intense the the parties themselves are in terms of uh, the amount of like hours and production that go into them, and like the stamina you need to like be at one, plus all of the promotion, all of the organizing. I I, I instantly realized I was like, oh, these are some of the hardest working people in New absolutely, York. absolutely. Insane. I mean, there were moments, and like you know, this is peak 25 year old behavior of like i would wake up at 8 a.m write five articles uh, usually about true crime go to see patients from 10 a.m to 6 p.m go to class yeah, from that's 6 p.m to 10 p.m and then go and dj until four in the morning you know that was like a normal wednesday for me for at least this i feel like i'm smoking a cigarette like this you i'm like i feel like this is like that's yeah, like how it I'm was right i don't now. know how i didn't die <laughs> like it doesn't yeah, and I would be drinking, like, you know, like, as a DJ, you're drinking 11, 15 drinks in a night, and then yeah. doing it all again. It doesn't make any sense how anyone can That's, do it. Yeah, the biology doesn't line up. No. <laughs> no. Well, I will say, I do find, I have noted, like, the more I've, like, explored the, like, the the nightlife, like, the party scene, I feel like you do encounter a lot more people who don't drink. And I think because of that, it's, like like either like they're sober or like they choose a substance that isn't alcohol because they need to keep going. And it's like, I do see a lot less alcohol consumed in those spaces than like maybe the nightlife industry adjacent spaces where I was in for a long time. Yeah. I think bars and restaurants like bartenders are drinky people. And like, I can't imagine being a sober bartender, but I do know a decent amount of drag queens who are sober. I mean, Lady Berica Andrews, who is like my sister in in the drag world, she was one uh-huh. of like she had a really long sobriety journey throughout her nightlife career, and yeah. you know she was a serious drug user. For this is public information, so I'm not kind of blowing, <laughs> not spilling <laughs> no, her totally. tea. Totally. Um, she, and uh, you know, at a certain point, she does way, way, way less nightlife now because it's just not a healthy or safe environment for someone who has has yeah. sh- struggles with. Um, addiction in any way and and so the i do know there are a lot of queens who are completely sober but i i it's rough i can't even imagine because you're just literally like i would be djing and i would be like handed pictures of vodka like like, and i'm just gonna drink it yeah you have to say i think you would have to say unbelievably vigilant just even to make make sure that you don't like accidentally consume something yeah you know and yeah it's yeah i think there is I, I actually know a fair amount of people in the, the the restaurant bar industry that are also, you know, on their own sober journeys and whatever. And I think it is like similarly 
incredibly challenging because your career is built in proximity to it, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think it is, I think that's been something really exciting to see. Like, I feel like the NA cocktail world and like the NA beverage world is like blowing up in a way. And I think that's really great because I think maybe I can't speak to it because I haven't, I'm not someone in recovery and I'm not someone who identifies as like having like struggles with addiction particularly, but like, I think part of what makes it hard is like in spaces like bars and stuff, it feels like that's the only option. And I think that like, if you were, when places develop their NA, their like non-alcoholic menus and their non-alcoholic options. And it's like, Oh, it doesn't look any different to order one of these like gorgeous non-alcoholic cocktails or order one of these like weird non-alcoholic beers or non-alcoholic seltzers. And like the fact that we've like full circle to non-alcoholic seltzer made, <laughs> made is the most insane thing in the world to me. But like, but like, I think that it makes it a little bit easier to kind of not feel like you're sticking out. Definitely. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, what I noticed was like what like Lady Berica ended up telling me was like one of the weirdest things was being a sober person. And then as a drag queen, your job is to sell drinks. So you're sitting there being like, drink yeah. specials are this, this, and this. I'm not drinking any of them, but like you should. Yeah. Like it's it's a really tough situation for the queens to be in if they're trying to stay sober because they're like their job is to get people to buy drinks you know it's like even yeah. if it's like oh we're gonna play a stupid fucking trivia game oh am i allowed to curse on this my bad oh my god <laughs> oh my god say whatever you fucking okay want. great um like uh like i'm gonna play a trivia game like here's like five questions and then we're gonna give you a shot at the end like it's it's just I know. all it's alcoholic. just like it's all alcohol and then it gets hard because it's like i think that like i I hear a lot of people complaining about like the, especially like the queer nightlife scene and like the drag adjacent scene having alcohol as such a center point and like, and I, and I hear that, that criticism. And I think it is a huge issue and it does suck because like you shouldn't feel like you have to drink to be involved or feel like you're, you're going to put your sobriety at risk of being involved. And then I'm like, okay, but at the same time for like, if you want these to be salient business ventures, which they are, then like, then you do have to understand that like, if there's not going to be alcohol, then like the ticket probably has to be $55. Right. Like, and it, sucks because it's like then it becomes fiscally exclusive right. in this way where it's like if, the, the, if there's a bar they can keep the ticket price either non-existent or low because then the bar can make up the difference but then you are going to have proximity to alcohol but like you also can't expect free labor so it's like where something has to give somewhere and i think that's where it gets a little challenging and i think the 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 other side of it is like okay like let's start putting drag in non-bars right like that like do totally. it in theaters but first of all, theaters aren't interested in having drag because they still have these old ideas of, and outdated ideas about what theater actually is. And second of yeah. all, like part of drag and nightlife is that it is in these like designated community spaces, spaces where you're around yeah. other queer people, where there's family, where you feel connected to the people because you're in this kind of space. So then you're in a theater and it's much more anesthetized and there isn't the same. There's a sterility. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's so it's a really tough balance i mean i i have gone to drag in theaters my friends uh do this show called unavailable emotional carnivore and it's like this gonzo psychotic surrealist bizarro drag show and they do it at the Whoa. cell theater uh and it's really cool but it it is not the same as as a bar you know it's it does not have the same energy Totally. It's like, um, I've gone a handful of times to Sasha Velour nightgowns. And I think that's like a similar thing. Like when it's at, it's like in a theater venue space, the, a, one of the, a few of the times I've seen it. And it is like, it's an amazing show, but it doesn't, it, I wouldn't call it, it is a drag show, but it, I feel like almost the term drag show harkens to that idea of like a bunch of people in a room. There's like a community element to it. And not that a theater totally wipes that out, but it's like, we all did have our designated seat and like, there right. was, we all had to sit where we were and it wasn't there. There wasn't as much of like a shared energy. Maybe it is like much more focused on the stage. Um, yeah. Which is different. So it, it, but I'm excited to see, I do think that like the, the conversations you and I are having right now, I think are happening like throughout. And I do feel like events and stuff are evolving to, figure out new options and figure out new like ways to approach it all totally totally agreed it'll be interesting to see where it goes i mean digital drag for a moment presented like a new opportunity but the girls don't make enough coin on that shit you know like yeah. people don't tip on a digital show because they feel like they're not interacting with a human they feel like they're watching a screen because they're literally watching a screen because they are watching a yeah screen. yeah yeah i get like i 
the digital because comedy the comedy world had a similar thing where they were like going into the digital the digital space for a while and i think i did like one digital show and i was like i'm never doing this yeah like it just had such a sterility to it and such like a disconnect that i was like this is not like unfortunately for me like this makes me feel worse than not right like truly like um and i but i also was in a place where i was still working in restaurants so i didn't need the the money so it's like it was i don't know it's it's a complicated situation. Yeah, I mean, Barica, we were trying to do digital shows at the beginning. We put together like one or two collections of digital events and they were fun. And they're actually some of our like coolest looking shows because totally. people were able to do really interesting things and whatever. But um, Barica was explaining to me because I'm not, you know, like as a DJ, I just have like a different role in the show. But yeah. Barica was explaining to me that like, she's like, I like, do you realize how weird it is to stand in front of your camera with no one in the room to do a lip sync to a song that's just playing like on like your shitty Beatport speakers and no one's cheering, no one's doing anything. How do you even perform like that? It doesn't make any sense. It's not fun. Well, cause it's like, it's cause you're so much of learning to be a good performer is, tr- is training your ear and your brain to like link up with the sounds of the audience and modulate right so like oh they're liking this they're not liking this like it's like especially with something as free-flowing as drag like as like a lip sync that can you like is like really a living in the thing moment like with stand-up it is like a little bit more oftentimes choreographed but you still do need to like respond to laughter Mm. and feel what you are and so it's insane to go after like years of training your brain to be like silence is bad like silence unintentional silence like because intentional silence can be wonderful but like unintentional silence is indicated indicative of bombing like your brain is screaming at you to be like something's wrong fix it but it's no it's like no there's just no one in this right, fucking right. room i'm in front of a goddamn computer right. like it it makes your brain your brain is like i don't know how this works this is antithetical to how i was trained to perform and i think it's really fucking totally hard. and as a dj it's funny because like of course there is a si- sort of similar like if you see people dancing you play more of the same genre i'm the worst 100%. And I just play whatever I want, no matter where I go. So that hasn't been a problem for me. I am technically not a good DJ because, like, if I'm playing noise music and no one cares, I'm going to play even harsher noise music. Like, my goal is almost to punish people listening to me because I'm the worst. But for a normal DJ who's playing, you know, Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande, they have to kind of see who's feeling what, you know? And it's like... What is your, like, what is your drive behind that? Like, are you like, no, like, this is what I give? Like, when you're, like, what what is your kind of approach to DJing? I mean, my approach to DJing, first of all, is like, I love gay people. I love queer people. Mm-hmm. And I want to play music by gay and queer people. I am not going to show up to a gay bar and play a bunch of music by straight people. That's not... I do not care about what straight people are doing in the music industry. I don't think they make good music. Yeah. And I I can hear that on the radio and I can hear that wherever I go. So if I'm in a gay bar, I want to hear music by gay people. So that's like my primary thing. Like I play a lot of ballroom music. I play rap music by gay people. I play pop music by gay people. Like that's really it. I mean, I also just have like very obscure interests and I like noise music and I like really harsh sounding music. And, you know, I just think like, I got into DJing because I'm a snob and I, when I would show up at parties, I would take the iPod, unplug it and plug in my phone. So it's like my way (laughs) of just like, I'm going to control this space. You know, it's a bit. What's your sign? (laughs) Leo. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, but like, I mean, I, I do think that in my I think art that is challenging and difficult is more interesting than art that is accessible and fun. So like if I am doing something that is hard to sit through, like good, like I would like to challenge, like I wrote my master's thesis on transgressive art, which is, you know, like art that is kind of pushing the boundaries, art that is totally totally offensive, violent, bloody, sexual. And so that's the kind of music I'm playing. I, I, it's not interesting to me. Like if I hear a DJ that, you know, gay. I, I wrote about this for Vine Pair. Like, so often you go into a gay bar and it's Gaga, Britney, Beyonce, Madonna. Yeah. And like, I love all, I like pop music, but I, that's not interesting. That is not, it's entertaining, but it's not interesting to me. So I don't know. I, obviously, my take on being a DJ is really different. I also play just like full on, you know, hip hop sets. I think that. Yeah. Like I play a lot of rap music by women. Um, 
I think that in my history as a DJ, like there's been a lot of pushback against that because of racism in the gay bar industry, yeah. which I've written about totally. also. And I think it's really fucked up. I think that like, you know, there's there's so much calls for diversity now, but DJs just show up and play the same five artists and it, it doesn't 100%. make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like, it's like a, there's a little bit of like a matchmaking that has to happen where it's like, if you, I think like, like, people need to understand that that's not the kind of DJ you are. So it's like, they shouldn't come to your set if that's what they're looking right. for. Right. Like I love to go, like I do, I sometimes do just want a night where all I do is dance to the Gaga's, the Britney's, obviously the of course of the, of the world. And like who doesn't, but then like, I also am not going to go to like a techno party and be like, why aren't they playing rain on? Right. Like you have to like understand that. And I think that's part of it as well. It's like understanding what space you're entering and what's happened, like what you're showing up to. And then either if you don't like it, you can leave or you can stay. Right. And get, get on board. I mean, my thing is also like, I, I mostly have DJ drag queen drag shows uh, for most of my career. But I've also, because of my involvement in like the pro wrestling world, I've DJed a lot of wrestling shows. So I'm DJing like deathmatch nights where like dudes are cutting each other with like switchblades and like choking each other with barbed wire. And they're the toughest fucking dudes in the world. And I'll play like ballroom music for them where it's, you know, like burkat, burkat, like pussy cunt, pussy cunt. And like where, and those people have never heard anything like that before. Yeah. And a lot of them actually wind up really liking it because it's loud, it's intense, it's aggressive, it's high energy. And wrestling is drag. Right. Wrestling is mass drag. Yeah. Like no like I got into like I had a I had a WWE bout a few years ago where I like got into it the hardcore for like a year. And it was just like I was like, because this is drag. It's the same thing. There are like plot lines, there are personas, like it's so similar and so fun. Yeah. How did you get into the wrestling world? How did that happen? It was, it was, um, I mean, it started really as a joke. I've been a lifelong wrestling fan. Like I loved it when I was a kid. And then like a few years ago, the, they introduced the WWE network and I kind of bought it. It was cheap. It was like, what, $4 a month. So I was yeah, like, it was like a great, fine. Love it. And so like, I was like, that'll be fun. And it had all the old stuff. I was going back and watching every single China match. I was going back and watching all the Lita matches and so all of my friends, we just started watching every single pay-per-view together. Um, That's so fun. And it was really fun. And we all got really into it. And eventually, like, our, my friend Jordan Olds, who people sometimes know as Guarsenio Hall from the comedy show Two Minutes to Late Night, which is like a heavy metal comedy show. Um, oh, he was like, this is like the funniest thing. You're in a room full of drag queens watching pro wrestling. What if we did a show about this? And we were like, okay, girl, whatever you say. And so he like booked a whole film shoot for us. And we, we really showed up thinking that it would be Jordan with like an iPhone and we were going to record for five minutes and then it would go on YouTube and we would loll about it. And then that would be it. And the first video got 30,000 views in like one day. And so wow. we just kind of stuck with that for a few years of just kind of exploring exactly what you said, this intersection between drag and wrestling, which there is a huge overlap. And while we were doing this... Yeah, it's an enormous overlap. I mean, I've always said it's not a different art form. It's the exact same art form. Um, but as yes. we were doing our show for like four or five years, maybe a little less than that, I don't really know, um, there was a huge explosion of this underground queer wrestling movement. And now all across the country, the most popular wrestling shows on the indies that are selling out are all LGBT shows. You know, I did not know that. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, if you go on IWTV, which is independent wrestling television, um, they have like there they have just a constant it's another streaming service of all these indie wrestling shows, but every single time they do an LGBT show, it does better than all the straight shows. So it's like this Fucking whole new movement in that scene that happened. I'm not going to take credit for it, but it happened simultaneously while we were making our show. You were certainly a part of it. Like I, you, yeah, there's no denying that. It sounds like, I, I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to take credit for it, but yeah, I mean, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I think it sounds like it. Uh, I'll give you credit. Great, you thanks. have to take it. <laughs> Wait, but you mentioned, okay, wait, you mentioned Switchblades. Is it still choreographed or are they like actually fighting? Like, um, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't want to give away any industry secrets. Yeah, of course it's choreographed. Um, so I just didn't know if it was like run the similar, like run, if the indie is run, this run similarly to how like the 
I guess the pros is run or like the main. Yeah, I mean, it's not a fight club. This is not like right. dudes yeah, trying yeah. to kill each other, which there is a fight club in the Bronx and I would love to DJ it. So if anyone listening <laughs> can put me in touch with whoever runs that Bronx fight club, I would love to be playing ballroom music while dudes are legitimately trying to kill each other. Would be a dream come true. Oh my God. But, um, yeah, so yes, it is. It's the spots are pre pre planned, but all of the, as with any wrestling event, you have to be able to change everything on the fly if something goes No, there's improv. There's, it's, imp yeah, it's improv. Yeah. There's an element of improv. Yeah. I love that. Wait, I did, I'm obsessed with, I did not know that at all about the queer wrestling scene. That is so fucking cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> so, what does, when you do go out, what does going out, like, what does going out mean to you? And what, how do you like to go? now or like four years ago <laughs> honestly both like i want to hear the kind of the journey um i mean now it's just like i go to my friend shows that's really it or or yeah. i'm pay or i'm djing i will not right. go out yeah. unless it's like a good friend who is putting on a show or i'm paid to be there and yeah. you know that is it really does speak to the community element of drag because like i don't want like i love seeing the new girls and i love watching the dips and the splits and you know everyone carrying but like i want to see my friends are i think my i've made friends with some of my favorite artists in the entire world i think my group of friends and the shows they put on are the best drag shows in the world so that's where i'm going and then if i'm paid to be somewhere then i'm there um it used to be more of like uh just like I mean, I would go to a drag show and that, like not to sound like Lady Gaga, club, club, another club. I mean, it would be like yeah. a drag show, rave, ball all in one night. Like we're like hopping around, trying to see as much as possible, do as much as possible. I mean, it was, I just wanted to take it all in. I loved every single part of the underground queer culture and I just wanted to be a part of all of it. And, um, you know, you can only do that when you're, 25 23 yeah, to 27 and then your body's like no more yeah. it's a young person's game every once in a while though you meet like a 45 year old who's like still at it and i'm like god bless like and i hope you don't drop dead at 52 yeah <laughs> when we ran a pageant me and me and ariel italic and lady barica andrews ran a pageant called the mix nobody pageant for four years i hope to bring it back someday but you know for a number of reasons it's really hard to do that but um, we had Stella D'Oro, who is like a, she's like, I think she's like a 60-year-old drag queen. Obsessed. And she was like one of the judges for one of our nights. And like, I have never, like, <laughs> we, our shows were total fucking weirdo shows with girls, you know, bleeding all over the stage and puking all over the stage and whatever. And Stella got up there and did like an old school show tunesy number. And this like all of the, an entire Brooklyn Bazaar filled with 400 punks with dyed hair were cheering her like they've never cheered anyone I've seen in my entire life. I fucking love yeah. that. That's so amazing. <laughs> um, I have a, okay, wait, I have a question. And maybe this is not true and just a thing. Like maybe this is an anomaly among me, but I feel like I know I have encountered a lot of queer men in the nightlife space who are also like, therapist or psychiatrist oh really <laughs> i feel like there's a huge like overlap is that your experience or is this just no me? i think it's who? i think i can name like five off the top of my head are you serious yeah well who are they i don't know those girls like <laughs> well a, one of them lives the one of them is my boy like my one of my boyfriend's best friends and who actually lives in toronto and like commutes down all the time but and then mm -hmm. it's all because my boyfriend like loves to go to those parties and like do the late night scene and i don't to be honest so like i rarely go with him so it's a lot of people i've met in passing and i'm like oh what do you do and i've, I've commented to nate being like why are you how, how why are you partying with six psychiatrists like what is going on but i think i've met i think i can i truly don't know any other names but i i except for my friend olish but i think i've met like four or five, i think you might be the fifth that's crazy i know that like uh katrina loveless who's a drag queen used to be a social worker uh I don't know if I'm blowing up her tea right now, but um, we can <laughs> think believe it. Yeah. Um, and I met, I forgot his name in Mexico city. He was a DJ and a music producer who was also a psychotherapist. He was really cool. And his music is incredible. And I've forgotten his name. So that those are like the two <laughs> I can think of. Maybe it was Viva. Viva Vidalia was maybe a social worker at some point. I maybe. Yeah. I was just so, I was curious if like there was, a, some sort of Venn diagram of like interest or passion like that would lead to that overlap I, but none that I none know that of you know. I feel like a total fucking anomaly and it's like <laughs> <laughs> 
Drag queens are, I, obviously I've spent my life amongst drag queens. I was raised by drag queens. They're my favorite people in the world. They're a very self-absorbed group of people. Mm-hmm. And you need to be to be an artist and a performer. But I don't yes. think most of the drag queens I work with even know that I'm a psychotherapist because they're just, they're like, if I were to be like, oh yeah, I got to go to work tomorrow. Like I have like 10 patients. They'd be like, oh, I have a photo shoot tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, girl, have a good yeah, time. It's like totally. <laughs> yeah, it's like How did you, how did you get here? Like how did, if like, you were raised, you just said you were raised by, like how did you get into this thing? How did this all happen for you? Um, I grew up on Long Island um, and I grew up in the town that's like, closest to the city that so like when i was a kid um i could just take the train into the city like and i started doing that when i was like 14 or 15 and like so i would like get out of school at 3 p.m and then get on the train and go into the city Uh and um i just was always like long island is a really nasty weird cruel (laughs) secluded hyper wealthy uh bizarro nightmare world and i really hated every single part of it so every single thing in me was like go find the exact opposite of this so i was like sneaking into raves and gay bars and um like clubs since i was like 14 or 15 you get you get really good at going through the back door like i made friends with some older raver djs who would like I would like carry their vinyls into the venue and then so that no one would check my wristband or my ID. Holy shit. So I just got really good at sneaking into it. So I've just been in and around the underground nightlife world for a very, very long time. Um, And then when I was in college, I like eventually learned how to DJ and then everything else happened from there. That is so fucking cool. Like, as, <laughs> I like I grew up in the woods of Vermont, and I always fantasize about doing anything interesting in the city. And it, we, I, it sounds like you were doing exactly what I wish I had been doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. My parents like trusted. I was like, uh, I w- I didn't even do drugs when I was like a kid, so I would. That's like, probably why like, it worked out. To be honest, right? <laughs> I was like very honest with my parents that where I was like, I'm going to go to this rave. Like, I'm not going to do any drugs at it. I'll be home at four in the morning, and like, I will still get all straight A's. And they were like okay i mean we can't really that's fine (laughs) like damn are you the youngest Uh uh-huh yeah that's that's (laughs) how that works yeah as the oldest that shit doesn't fly but the youngest right whatever the fuck they want (laughs) (laughs) um so you okay that's interesting because that means that you've really seen the like drag and new york nightlife scene evolve over a long period of time sure have yeah how has that been for you? Like, do you feel like it has changed in ways that you like, like in ways you don't like both? Like, well, I mean, obviously the biggest change is drag race. Well, um, yeah. And that, that, yeah. that didn't exist and has changed the entire industry. Um, in a massive way. Yeah. In a massive way. In a and ma- I mean, there were, uh, everyone is a drag queen now. Every single yeah. person in the world is yeah. a drag queen now. Yeah. And that was just not the case. Um, Like, uh, I would say the other, like, very weird change is that, like, when I was a kid, like, I was, like, a raver, right? And, Uh like, so I wore, like, the big UFO pants and, like, you know, like, tons of shitty candy bracelets. Um, And when I would go into the city, like, the older rave kids would be, like, be careful of the punks. They'll beat your ass. Like, punks don't like ravers. And um, nowadays, like anyone who's weird just gets along. So like all of the subcultures have kind of turned into one weirdo subculture. That sounds objectively good in a way. In, in certain ways. I mean, you lose a little bit of like the, the like tight knit community aspect of it because every weirdo is just a weirdo, but everyone's really stylish now, which like, you know, did you like, um, I remember reading like when Michael Alec got out of jail, he wrote this, he wrote this essay for this book called the fun. And it was all about how confused he was that like back in, back in like the nineties when he was a club goer, like stylish people were really rare. And he's like, now I look around and everyone is, everyone knows how to dress cool and everyone looks cool. So that's like another big change. Um, but I mean, like I said, the biggest change is drag race. Like, before drag race i don't think people really thought of drag as art they thought of it as something stupid that happened in bars and it was 
an illegitimate art form. It was not taken seriously. And almost like the most, like one of the, it was like, I remember thinking of it when I was really young as like one of the like worst possible symptoms of gayness. Like it was like, <laughs> oh, they got an extreme case and they do drag. Do you know what I mean? Like that was right. like sort of how we were taught about it. And I think that that's like what I, I get like a little bit of like a bee in my bonnet about when people, like I was on TikTok the other day and just saw this like 16 year old, like ranking the seasons of drag race, like which ones were good. At, and like, he was ranking a lot of the earlier seasons a lot lower. And I was like, no, babe, you need to understand that, like, when Bibi Zahara Benet was being Bibi Zahara Benet, like, it wasn't cool to be a drag queen. Like, everything you saw her doing on that stage was, like, in spite of, like, an unbelievable amount of, like, rejection and also, like, rejection's not even the right word. I'm like, I, I, the word is, like, escaping me. But, like, it was, like, she... Says, like she was doing that because like that's who she was and that's what she needed to do but like was making herself a pariah in society because that's what drag queening was yeah and like that makes it's like when you add that context it's like well that's better than anything that like in a certain way that's like better than than anything that like trixie mattel can do because like it it's not the, the context makes it so much more it, she's overcoming so much more to do it in a certain right and it's maybe like, trixie wasn't the best there. example but like right I just no trying, i know what you mean yeah it's also like drag used to be um, like a, an art form that was only communicated through like sort of secret clandestine family groups. And yeah. like there were no YouTube makeup tutorials. You had to learn from a drag mother. Yo, that didn't that didn't even occur to me that it's like when people used to say like drag daughter and dad, drag mother, it's like, yeah, they were truly handing down like the family secrets of like how they contoured how painted they, how they padded how yeah, they danced that's so fucking real so like you can for the same reasons you can go look back at season one of rupaul's drag race and their faces look jacked girl like because <laughs> there was not videos on youtube of how this is how you paint your face this is how you do this there were not makeup products designed for drag queens there were not you know like it was yeah. not the same thing but culturally it was not the same thing it was no one in before Drag Race, the, I mean, the, the simplest way to put it is before Drag Race, being a drag queen was not a career option. It was not something no, that you no, could no, no, make no, no. money off of. 100%. Like, it was, it was, it was just something stupid that faggots did in the back <laughs> of a shitty broke yeah. down bar. Yeah. And it was not, there were not conventions. There were not, there were not albums singles yeah Yeah, it was so that's the biggest change and it's it's so weird to me because you know i am like at this point an old crone in the drag scene and now there's all (laughs) these like 21 year olds coming up who don't remember a time before drag yeah because they didn't they weren't cognizant like yeah but like what so you like the the drag scenes you've talked about being in like recently are in the more like i guess for lack of a better word like alternative drag space. Yeah, yeah, sure. And was it always that way? Or did you kind of find yourself moving into that as like mainstream drag ballooned into what it's become? Well, it's different because here's another change is like, you know, like um, drag queen, the ravers always really liked drag queens. So there would be like drag queens at raves. Right. Which like, uh, like I used to see Acid Betty at like raves. Like, yeah. And that doesn't really happen anymore either because now what you have is like this weird schism between like the techno scene and the drag scene. And it's really go like, you know, there's like techno gays and drag gays is like a joke that's always on Twitter and, 100%, and whatever. 100%. And that's not how it used to be, girl. Like that's new. Like the there used to be weirdo artists and performers at raves and burns and whatever. And I guess because of drag race, there's kind of a schism now. So I think there's like a, there's a proclivity to want to distance yourself from drag race. If you want to seem alt or you want to seem like esoteric, it's like, yeah, which like going to the raves and going to the, whatever's the, the cool parties can be. But if like, drag gets involved then i think people think it's a little like mainstream now because but even the alt queens aren't at raves most of the time unless they're djs there are a handful of drag djs who are like incredibly good um but i don't know it's it's a weird thing i guess to when i was starting to go to drag shows i mean there was an alt drag scene it was harder to find though. Cause you know, by there, nature of being drag, it was alt like already. Right. And yeah. also because like, um, there weren't, Facebook didn't exist. You had to know someone. 
one. So like you Damn, couldn't. This is pre fucking Facebook. Yeah, that, you couldn't yeah. find. You had to know a person who would hand you a flyer or call you on yeah. your phone and tell you where the gig was. It was not like so. You could go to Lips and get a you know a, a drag show with Madonna. Or you had to know someone in some kind of alt scene. So it, it just wasn't the same. Like the, the mainstream alt divide, it was all so secretive and different that it, it wasn't like there. To think of there being a mainstream drag scene and an alt drag scene back then, I mean, to some extent there was, but it wasn't. It, it, the, the things don't map onto each other in the same way. Yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. Are there things. With Drag Race make turning the drag scene into what it's become, are there what are like what would you say are like the good things and what would you say are like the bad? The good is that the girls can make coin now and yeah. that like and you can actually they, Yeah. Yeah. You can get actually paid for doing drag. And, you know, I think they the drag race girls get way more money and they get way more bookings and they get and it's not fair and they're not the most talented drag queens in the world, no shade. Um and they are the ones that have tons of fans and the the booking practices in all of the bars are so slanted towards like you know a a bar might pay their local girls a hundred dollars a night but if a drag race girl comes into town they'll pay her three thousand four thousand seven thousand and that's just not cool like those local girls are who made your bar who keep your bar running all year round yeah and now you're gonna pay them dust when like you know jade essence hall shows up like it's not it's not very cool um but it also just is the way it is anyway the point is that like you know uh what's the saying a rising tide raises all ships so if if those girls are doing good everyone does better and that's great and we love that is true yeah the i think my least favorite part of what has happened because of drag race is that as long as I have been involved in nightlife, which, like I said, is since I was like a literal child, there have <laughs> always been cis women, trans women, drag kings, drag yep. queens, club kids, drag monsters. Like, it's always been every type of weirdo person imaginable. And Drag Race presents this bizarro alternate history of drag where it's men dressing up as women. Yes. And then maybe there's like uh there's like a, a a trans woman in in there and she gets to talk about how she's representing the community. I mean, great. I'm so glad they're finally allowing trans women on the show and that the trans women are succeeding on the show. Yeah. But what the fuck took so long? I know. And like that's always been part of drag. And the yeah. fact that there has never been a drag king competing on drag race, that's crazy to me. Um so and then you have all these young kids and people who've never been to a real drag show in their life and just watch drag, drag race on TV, and they they think they know what drag is or who should or can do it. And so they have all these bizarro ideas of like a woman can't do drag and I'm like, "No, wh- where did you like it's just wrong. That's never been the case." Also saying like blank isn't drag or Blake can't do drag is like inherently antithetical to the concept of drag, right? right? Like that's like and that's what I think is so funny is like not understanding that the whole point is that there's no rules and like there's the whole point is that like it's about transgression in certain ways. So like why are you and it's obviously because it's like fitting it within capital, the system of capitalism. It's like, why are you putting it up these like rules and regulations to make it like so cookie cutter that it, like, right. you already have this one thing. Why not look for something that looks and acts a little different? Like, why does everything have to be the same? Yeah. The way my, my, uh, there's this drag queen named Mrs. Smith, who I absolutely love. She's, she is considered one of the best, uh, electric guitar players in the entire world. And oh her drag gimmick is that she's dressed as like a little old Upper East Side lady, but then she fucking shreds. And Genius. she's she's so cool and I love her and everyone should look her up. But the way she explained it to me when we were talking, and I, this has been my experience as well, is like when I went to drag shows as a kid, you would see all di- you would have like a girl doing like weirdo performance art. You would have a girl doing Lady Gaga. You would have, or back then it was probably Madonna. You would have a girl, you know, kind of eating shit on stage. You would have a drag king. You would have some weirdo comedy act. You would have a campy queen. Uh, then you would have a burlesque dancer. And it was all kinds of different performance art. Totally. You look on Drag Race and it's 
pretty dumb slut, pretty dumb slut, pretty dumb <laughs> slut. Oh, another pretty dumb. They're all beautiful. They're all young. They're all gay. They're all horny for men. They're it's it's very they're all the same kind of girl, which isn't to say that they're not. They're so talented. They're so good at what they do. But it's all men dressed as young, pretty, slutty pop stars. Yeah, and that's for, not yeah. slut shaming. Those girls should be as slutty as they want, and I love that for them. But it's, and they are there are a lot of women on it now too. Like this season has a decent amount of trans women on it, which is wonderful. But right. Like it took your it took for forever <laughs> we're in so season long. 14 girl yeah. like yeah, yeah. I, it's not it's, okay no i totally agree um yeah it's interesting to it's interesting to like see the intersection now also of like drag race affecting like the gay bar industry and the nightlife and like how it's not like not like obviously it has had effects on the culture of drag itself and then also like the industries that are like adjacent to it gay bars like gay clubs venues and watching like like how upset people were when they moved the show to friday nights and i like my friends were like so confused like that like wait it's like more fun on a friday night and i was like no it's actually but like gay bars don't need help on a friday night gay bars need help on a wednesday night and like if drag race is on wednesday that's like huge for a gay bar and it's like Oh, and it's like, it's crazy that this TV show now and when they air it has production value, like production effects on like, or or like dividend effects on bars. Like, you know, All-Star 6 being streamed, you could stream it in the morning, I think hurt gay bars. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, I it shows how little the, the VH1 producers care at all about the local scenes. You know, like they right. knew that they were screwing over a lot of local gay bars who were making good money doing monday night shows for several years and they didn't care i mean of course they they have to look at their bottom lines and i'm sure some metrics were run and they needed to make their money but it it did fuck over a lot of people i know it is like it's this question of like what is what are the moral responsibilities of a television production right like you know we talk about this i this conversation i feel like comes up a lot my friends and i talk about sex in the city where i'm like what is like what is like the like what are the moral obligations of a television show like in terms of like if their if their fandom watches the TV show and takes away the wrong message is that the show's fault or the fans' fault you know what I mean and it's like some like is VH1 responsible for like how gay bars do uh, technically absolutely not but like would it be nice if they did care and did something to make it, like if they know that they can help by moving this show to Monday nights like yeah that would be fucking great and like yeah it's it's interesting. There's no like true answer because it right. is like subjective, but it is just like an interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people think about. Yeah. What drew you like, has your relationship like in terms of like how, cause you, you've been going out. I feel like you're the, you, you're not the, you're probably the youngest person I've talked to in terms of who's how young they started and how long they went in terms of like existing in the nightlife scene and going out regularly. Do you feel like there are like chapters or, and eras of like what kind of changed for you in terms of like how you were going out, what your relationship to it was, like what you were looking for in it, what, what it was giving you. I mean, yes and no, I can't like divide it as cleanly as like different chapters, of course, but it's like, I don't know. It changes obviously going to raves and nightclubs and gay bars when I was a kid is really different from going there as my job. Like that's like, a really big change and be going to a bar and knowing that you're going to be working from 10 PM to 4 AM is really different from going to a club and knowing you're going to be dancing and screaming your head off at yeah. 4 AM. So I guess that is the biggest thing. And then obviously the pandemic, I guess would be the the kind of biggest break in the next chapter because nightlife is not the same and may never be the no. same. So yeah. And I'm not the same and may never be the same because I can't, I don't have the energy or stamina or alcohol tolerance anymore for for real nightlife. So I guess those would be like the main kind of dividing sections, you know, like the, the, the throwing my own parties in grad school was obviously a huge, like when I started doing that, it made me think of events in a really different way and how do you make money and how do you yeah. book talent and how do you think about what a show says and all of that. Yeah. Um, so I guess that would be another kind of subsection. 
What are you, okay, so I feel like I ask this question a lot of people who work in, like, bars or restaurants um, in terms of, like, what are the things that you wish, like, in that instance, like, it would be, like, what do you, what are the things you wish, like, customers knew or understood or, like, what do you, like, and in terms of, like, nightlife events and parties, like, what are the things you wish partygoers understood, like, yes. ravers yes. understood? Yes, um, tip the drag queens. Uh, Die. If you didn't know that, stop listening to this podcast. Right. Don't stop listening to this podcast. But like, you, you need to keep listening to this podcast and start tipping your fucking queens. Well, like, okay, so like, uh, I the way I have explained it is that tipping is not optional; it is mandatory. It is um, in every circumstance. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> it's not like these girls are not paid enough. They put on makeup for three hours and are now dancing their asses for you. You have to give them more money. It is not an option. And I think straight people really still are not getting that message, and they're not really understanding that this is like an. Act job and it's not just like a silly clown or something also every show has a venmo so don't be like i didn't yes. have cash yes. every fucking like i'm telling you my friends are like oh i don't have cash i'm like get your phone out and yeah fucking venmo because yeah. i'm telling you there's a venmo uh so that's like obviously the huge one um i think uh this applies less to like gay people who might be listening but i have noticed that straight people tend to think of djs as wedding DJs or something. And they, Requests, yeah. Yeah, they think that a DJ is there to play what they want to hear, and yeah. that is not correct. I was hired by the venue to play what I play. and You're an artist. Yeah, and you don't get to get angry when I'm not playing your favorite song, Mr. Brightside by The Killers. Um, God in heaven, no. <laughs> that is my number one requested song in the 10 years I've been DJing, and it's quite possibly my least favorite song i will be playing ballroom music and a, a girl inevitably will come up to me and ask for mr right side of the killers and i'm like i don't this is not even the same vibe that's I don't know, shocking i don't know why that's you think i have this mp3 um also like there's this like weird like i've had so many people come up to me while i'm djing being like can you play this and i'm like i don't have that track and they're like we'll go online and get it i'm like you think this gay bar has wi-fi homegirl and they're like i'll give you my phone i was like you think i'm gonna rewire this whole sound system so you could play mr brightside on your phone no it's not happening um so djs are not your employee um that would be the other thing um I don't know. Mind your fucking business is a lot of it. <laughs> like, uh, like, I mean, that's just my lesson as like a New Yorker of like, if you are in a party and you see someone doing something you don't like, mind your goddamn business. Like, yeah, if they're not hurting anyone else. Yeah. Just mind, mind your, your business. business. Just mind your business. Um, I, I, we don't need, we got enough real cops running around. We don't need little nightlife cops running around. Just mind your goddamn business. Yeah, whether you're getting paid or not, don't be a fucking cop. Maybe that's just like a great <laughs> rule of thumb. And that maybe is where we should end the podcast. Like, honestly, just like, don't be a fucking cop. Really? For real? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Going Out with Jake Cornell. If you could please go and rate and review us on whatever you're listening to this on, that would be really gorgeous for me in a huge way. So thank you. And now for some credits. Going Out with Jake Cornell is recorded in New York City and produced by Keith Beavers and Katie Brown. The music you're hearing is by Darby Seaside. The cover art you're probably looking at was photographed by M. Cooper and designed by Danielle Grinberg. And a special shout out to Vinepair co-founders Josh Mallon and Adam Teeter for making all of this possible. 